Today's scripture is 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 14. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We have come to the end of our study of First Peter. Uh, if, you are, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Pew Bible's in front of you. It's on page 1017. So take a look there if you need to grab a Bible. Uh, page 1017. Again, we're at the end of 1 Peter. Uh, we finished it off. I love this letter. I'm so glad we took a fair amount of time to take a look at it together. Uh, Peter has been writing. He wrote to a group of Christians. I, I mentioned this some time ago. In Asia Minor, n- number of churches throughout Asia Minor within the Roman Empire who were beginning to face persecution uh, at the hands of Nero, who was emperor around this time. And, and it wasn't so much, you know, widespread, uh, heavy-duty persecution that they were facing. It was more sporadic. Issues were starting to rise up. They were beginning to experience uh, uh, exclusion, especially in the workplace. They were refusing to for instance, uh, offer incense to the gods of the various trade guilds. And so that meant that they were not getting work. So there were things like that that were going on. And Peter wrote really to give them a reminder concerning their identity. This is who you are. You are, on the one hand, exiles and aliens. This, This world is not your home. But you're also born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is your identity. This is, this is your destiny. There's this, there's this inheritance, even your salvation that's kept in heaven for you. It's being guarded for you. You're being guarded for it. So this is who you are. This is your destiny, identity, destiny, and then strategy, a way to live in the world uh, in which they found them, themselves. Uh, so you look in places like, you know, back in First Peter chapter 2, Really kind of a summary statement, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's one. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this idea of what does evangelism look like for them in this place, it is certainly sharing the gospel as you have opportunity, but, but it's also very much living a faithful Christian life, being a faithful witness to God as you trust in Christ, and especially as you see in 1 Peter chapter 3, living with such a sense of hope in the midst of oppression and hardship and persecution that as people look at you, they can't help but inquire, can't help but wonder, where does your hope come from? In summary, Peter would say, live with Christ set apart as Lord in your heart. 
So identity, strategy, destiny, that's really at the heart of what Peter's doing throughout this letter. He doesn't end the letter, however, in the way that you might think. He doesn't end by doing what I just did, which is give a summary of the letter as a whole. He doesn't end with a final call to remain faithful through trials with Christ set apart as Lord in their hearts. Instead, he finishes with a reminder of what's really going on. He says, in essence, this isn't ultimately about Nero. This isn't ultimately about the empire-wide persecution that is looming on the horizon for you. This isn't about the indignities that you're facing as neighbors, family, and friends begin to turn their backs on you. All that was happening. All of that was uh, about to happen if it wasn't already happening. And, and it's kind of like what's happening now. I mean, the cultural heat was being turned up then. The cultural heat's being turned up now. And that's, that's not something to complain about. It's an opportunity to live faithfully, even joyfully, through trials. But Peter, again, he, he doesn't end with a summary of the letter. He ends on reflecting on the battle that was really being waged. Nero wasn't the enemy. Their neighbors and their patrons that were refusing to give them business, they weren't ultimately the enemy. The real enemy, Peter said, is unseen. And, and Peter's saying to us through this letter that our leaders are our enemies. The neighbors and the co-workers and the broader culture that mocks people who believe in Jesus, they're not, they're not the enemy. The real enemy is unseen. The enemy, as Peter tells us in this passage here at the end, is the devil. Now, there tends to be two responses whenever you begin to talk about the devil. The first is abject terror and fear, which is giving the devil more than his due. And the other, more common, at least within our, uh, our culture, the people that we would know, is um, an eye roll, snicker, which is also an error because it's not taking the devil seriously enough. So we'll see as we go along here that the devil is dangerous, but he's defeated and therefore not to be feared by those who are Christians. He is vicious, but he is also vanquished. But let me talk for a second about that second response, the snickering, the laughter, the disbelief. I get it. It is 2019. It feels a little bit embarrassing to talk about demons and the devil. But it isn't just Peter that talks about the devil. It isn't just James and Paul that talk about the devil. Jesus talks a lot about the devil. And we, and we can't say, you know what, I love some of what Jesus says. I really love what Jesus says about love and justice. But he was really out of touch when it came to this demon stuff. You know, he, we now know better than what they knew then. And he was just, he was kind of captured by his time. No. Jesus is authoritative in all things or he's authoritative in nothing. We can't choose from some of what he says that makes us feel comfortable and reject other things that he says concerning the very real danger and present uh, reality concerning the devil. We can't reject that. 
He's either authoritative in all things or he's authoritative in nothing. And so we have to take this very seriously. The devil is real. And in our tradition, we tend to not take him seriously enough. What happens when we don't take Satan seriously enough? Well, he can't steal our salvation, but he can rob us of our joy. He can't put us back into the chains of sin and misery, but he can keep us, if we would let him, from living in the freedom that we've been granted in Christ. He can't remove us from the kingdom of light, but he can convince us that the kingdom of darkness isn't really all that bad. And he also delights in not being taken very seriously. C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters in 1942. The Screwtape Letters, it's a novel. It takes the form of a series of letters from a senior demon named Screwtape written to his nephew Wormwood, who was a junior tempter. Wormwood's job in this novel is to prevent a British man known only as the patient from believing in God. And so the letters are all filled with advice from Screwtape to his nephew Wormwood on how to undermine faith. And one of the things that Screwtape says to Wormwood has to do with this idea of allowing, encouraging even humans to not take the devil too seriously. So Lewis, Screwtape, writes this. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you, Wormwood. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. It's, it's a fictional story, but the devil is real. And when he roars, and he does roar, if we have not taken him seriously enough, we easily believe that he who is in us is actually not greater than he who is in the world. So Peter tells us the devil is like a roaring lion. He's always ready to pounce. We must be ready. And Peter tells us how in this passage. He tells us three things. First, we need to think rightly about our adversary. Second, we need to resist him, firm in our faith. And then third, we need to rest securely in the grace of God. So those are our three points. First, think rightly about your adversary. Second, resist him, firm in your faith. And third, Rest securely in the grace of God. That's where we're headed, but first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would be with us by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for taking uh, with such a grain of salt spiritual realities, for failing to recognize in our daily lives uh, the fact that there are things unseen that are no less real than that which is seen. And so we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the ways in which you protect us that we, that, we, that we never see. And we pray now that you would 
guard our hearts and our minds, that as your word is proclaimed here, the enemy would not be permitted to snatch away the seed of your truth as it would seek to find the rich soil in the human hearts that you have prepared for it. And we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So first, think rightly about your adversary. Take a look at verse 8. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. Just be in your right mind. Be watchful. Be attentive. Pay attention to these things. Think rightly. Peter tells us about Satan's identity and strategy and destiny. The whole letter is about our identity and destiny and strategy. Well, we get a picture of Satan's identity and strategy and destiny. So his identity, Peter tells us first that he is our adversary. Your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion. That, that Greek word adversary is a word that describes an opponent in a court of law. So if Jesus Christ is your advocate before the Father and if the Holy Spirit indwelling you is your paraclete, your advocate, then Satan is the prosecuting attorney. That totally jives with Revelation 12 where Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. He makes accusations. He is your adversary in that sense. He is Peter tells us the devil, the the word devil, diabolos, is the word that has to do, describes one who deceives or one who slanders. That's what Satan does. He presents false charges. He, He slanders man before God. Think about Job. I mean, what is Satan doing? Go back and read, the fir- read all of Job. But even if you just read the first few chapters of Job, what you get is this picture of, of Satan coming before God and saying, he's had it way too easy. Surely he won't be faithful. And, and Satan also slanders God to man. I mean, think about what happened in the garden. Did God really say... God doesn't want you to become like him. So Satan is not only trying to undermine God's goodness and, and, and slander God to man, he's also presenting himself as the one who is truly good. See, I'm doing you a favor by pointing out to you what really should be yours. So his identity, he's our adversary. He is the devil. His strategy, in rare instances to create abject terror. Demon possession is real. We may not experience that in this culture, but you can't read missionary reports from throughout the ages and not recognize that demon possession is a real thing. Furthermore, you can't read your New Testament without acknowledging that demon possession is a real thing. Now, how you address that may be different than the common misconceptions that we may have as a result of watching movies or reading really bad novels. But the fact of the matter is that at times, particularly, for instance, when the gospel is making an advance in a new culture, or particularly, for instance, during a time of revival, There is a heightened amount of demonic activity at times. 
More commonly, the approach that Satan takes can be described as a sustained strategy of disinformation warfare. A sustained strategy of disinformation warfare. Satan would have us as Christians believe things like, Christianity's good, but don't get too carried away with it. I mean, be religious. Try to be a better person, nicer at work, better dad, better mom, better parent, better child, but don't get crazy with it. You, you hear that in, uh, in uh, Lewis's work, The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape writes to Wormwood, if you can get once, if you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. So, disinformation warfare. Christianity's good, but only to a certain extent. Don't, don't get carried away with it. Don't be like sold out for Jesus. Don't be one of those people. Or disinformation warfare. What you're doing, that sin that you're toying with, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, there's so many people doing so many wicked and evil things. What you're doing, it's not that big of a deal. And who's getting hurt anyway? Again, screw tape letters. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So common approach of Satan in our, in our culture Strategy of disinformation warfare. But his goal is crystal clear. To weaken and destroy, if he could, the church by systematically and covertly drawing Christians away from Christ. And he's ruthless in his approach. That's what Peter is saying when he says that the devil is like, is prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. His identity, he is the accuser, he is the diabolos, he is the, the one who would deceive. His strategy, most often misinformation or disinformation warfare. He's all about fake news. And then third, his destiny. Now, it's common to think, boy, there, there must be then, because of all these things that we just said, there must be this cosmic warfare, this battle that's taking place, good versus evil. And, and, and Jesus at the cross, that was a victory, but how's it all going to turn out? What is, after all, Satan's destiny? That is not the picture that the Bible gives us. The picture that the Bible gives us is, on the one hand, that Satan is vicious, but at the same time, he is vanquished. He is a vanquished foe. The head of Satan was crushed by Christ 
at the cross. The curse that was pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 within it, the promise that the, the, the son of the woman would crush, crush the head of the serpent, serpent, that happened at the cross. Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, in Christ at the cross. Satan has been bound. Jesus, when he was accused of doing the work of Satan when he did his miracles, said, no, I'm, I'm bringing in the kingdom of God. In fact, I, in order to bring in the kingdom of God, I need to bind the strong man. If, if you're going to come in and, and rob a house, you need to first tie up the strong man in order to get to the goods in the house. Jesus is saying, I've come into the world to bind the strong man, to bind Satan. And he did. That's Colossians 2. 15. And so Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3, when we read that the strong man Satan is bound, he's bound. What does that mean? Well, it means that Satan can't prevent the spread of the gospel. He can't. Satan cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. He can't dismantle what Christ is building. He cannot dismantle the church. He can't rob a Christian of his or her salvation. He can't in any ultimate sense do any Christian harm. He is the ruler of the world, but not in the sense that he is somehow sovereign over that sphere, only in the sense that we in our sin have granted him dominion over us. In this world, as one author said, Satan is merely a squatter with no rights. In fact, all his activity in the world is only by God's permission and always to accomplish God's mission. Only by God's permission. Again, read Job. Satan cannot touch Job apart from God's permission. Think of Peter, the author of this book. Right before Peter denies Christ three times, Satan says, I'm sorry, goodness gracious, forgive me. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, you picture Jesus just looking to Peter, but the you there is plural. So to the disciples, Satan has asked to sift y'all like wheat. I've prayed for you. And here's Peter in his pride saying, well, they may turn away. I won't turn away. But again, that was to accomplish God's purpose in the life of Peter. Because Peter would stumble, Peter would fall, and Peter would be restored by Jesus Christ. And Peter would go on to accomplish great things in the name of Christ. All Satan's activity is only by God's permission and always to accomplish God's mission. Now, we don't experience life that way. That's what's true. The way that we experience life is not that way. We face grave suffering in this world. We face great trials. There's evil spread across the, the internet and the news headings every single day. And so how can it be that on the one hand we can say that 
Christ achieved a, a total victory, and yet evil can be so prevalent down to this very day? Can it be said that Satan is a defeated foe? I want to commend a book to you. This book, little book, Satan Cast Out, it's very thick. It's not very thick there, but it's very thick in terms of what's in it. Rich, Rich Doctrine, Satan Cast Out by Frederick Leahy. Uh, the publisher is Banner of Truth Trust. So if you are familiar with publishing houses, you know that when it comes to sound doctrine, you can, you can trust Banner of Truth Trust. Uh, the, the cover, you can't probably see it. It kind of looks like a, the cover of a Frank Peretti novel, which if you've read those, you know that in terms of sound doctrine, not so much. The, if you could see it, you would see lightning flashes in the background. And when I first got the book, I was like, well, that seems a little dramatic. But then you read the book, and Leahy gives a great illustration concerning this, this tension that we live in. How is it that, that this great victory has been accomplished, and yet we don't see Satan as a fallen foe when the Bible presents those two things as happening together? And the picture that he gives, the illustration that he uses, is that of thunder and lightning. They happen at the same time. We see the lightning, we hear the thunder later because light travels faster than sound. But in actuality, they're happening at the same time. And, and Leahy is saying, listen, it's like that when it comes to Christ's victory over Satan and Satan's actually downfall, his, his actual downfall. We, don't, we, we live in this time, this sequence of time in which it is like we see the lightning and we're still waiting to hear the thunder. But from the perspective of eternity, when Christ returns, we will, though finite, see as God sees in this sense that both of these things happen at the same time. The, the lightning and the thunder, the crack, it happened at the cross. Satan is a vanquished foe. Our experience, consequently, in this time between the flash of the lightning and the crack of the thunder being our experience in reality, it's, it's, like, it's like what happened with the Allied troops after D-Day. You've, you've heard me share this illustration before, but just a quick reminder, right? The, the moment a beachhead was established on the beaches of Normandy, World War II was over, at least the European front. There was just going to be a constant flow of, of men and weapons and supplies. Hitler would fall. Germany would fall. It was just a matter of time. But that time between D-Day and VE Day was filled with some of the most vicious fight. The Battle of the Bulge happened between D-Day and VE Day. The same is true in our experience now. The devil is defeated, but he is still dangerous. The devil is vanquished, but he is still vicious. As Leahy says in this book, Satan's counteroffensive is as hopeless as it is fierce. And so we can say with Martin Luther 
in a mighty fortress. We can sing verse 1, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We can sing that from verse 1. We can also sing verse 2, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. How be ready for Satan's attack. Think rightly about your adversary. Now, good news. In homiletics, preaching class 101, Dr. Brian Chapel, my preaching professor, said, listen, students, whenever you're preaching a sermon, if the points aren't going to be of equal length, make sure that first point is the longest. First point's the longest. Good news. We'll move quickly through points two and three. So, first point, think rightly about your adversary. Second, resist him. Firm in your faith. Take a look at verse nine. Peter writes in verse nine, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. Resist, not flee. Listen, the Bible talks in all kinds of ways about fleeing from sin. We are to flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. We're to flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10.14. We're to flee from the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.11. We're to flee the evil desires of youth, 2 Timothy 2.22. The Bible never says to flee from Satan. James says in James 4.8, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist? By putting on the full armor of God. I'm going to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. I am not going to go through and break down every aspect of it. I want you to go back and do that. But just so that we all, you know, recognize what's there real quickly. Let me just read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Just a few observations real quick. First, the armor is primarily defensive. Again, resist the devil. The Bible doesn't say flee the devil, neither does it say go pursuing the devil. Resist the devil, primarily defensive, with the exception of the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The main weapon, I tried to emphasize it in the way I read it at the end. Do you see how much Paul emphasizes prayer? All prayer, all supplication. Prayer is the main weapon. 
Notice also, no covering for the back. All, all the weapons is, don't flee. Stand, face, fight. And then finally notice, it's, it's God's armor. It's the victor's armor. It's given now to you. Your armor, in a sense, is secondhand, in the best sense of the word. Go back and read Isaiah 11, 4 to 5, and Isaiah 59, 17, and you will see that Jesus first wore this armor, and it's now been fitted for you. But Jesus won the battle. Second, so at first, just put on the armor of God. How do you stand firm? Put on the armor of God. Second, remember that you're not alone. Remember that you're not alone. This is what Peter is saying at the end of verse 9, back in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so Peter would say to these people who are experiencing persecution, you're not alone in this. Peter, because this is preserved by God for us down to this very day as part of Scripture, it's for God's people all throughout history in all places. You're not alone. Any beginnings of opposition that we may face in this culture, my goodness, isn't it so good to know that we're not alone? And when it comes to temptation that we face, think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. Even when tempted to sin, we're not alone. We need to know we're not alone. It's amazing what you can discover through Google. I came across, um, maybe surprising to you, a journal that I don't have on my shelf the journal Air Power History. Anybody have it? I could have borrowed your copy if you have, but thankfully I've got Google. Air Power History. Title of the article, Communication, the Key to Survival for American Prisoners of War in Vietnam. And the author writes this, the Vietnamese did not want the prisoners to communicate. It was much easier to persuade a man to cooperate if he was alone. For a few months, the captors were successful in their attempts to keep the Americans from communicating. Eventually, as more prisoners arrived, their attempts became futile. The ingenuity of the American prisoners of war in Vietnam enabled them to devise several successful means of communicating. This ability to communicate with each other was the key to the survival of the prisoners. The subject matter of interrogations was very important information. If the prisoners were going to succeed at an organized resistance campaign, then they would have to know what kind of questions were being asked and what methods were being used to get answers. The enemy wanted to prevent the Americans from organizing any such resistance group. To do so, they attempted to stop communication. You see what's happening there? It's the same thing that's happening in the church at a, at a, at a spiritual level. We, we need to know that we're not alone. We need to speak into each other's lives so that we can understand how we're each experiencing the attacks of the enemy. We need to encourage one another, exhort one another, build one another up. This is relational discipleship. We're called to resist the devil together. Peter uses the plural when he says, you must resist him. It's, again, it's y'all. So much easier if we lived in the South to get this across. You all together need to resist the enemy. 
I think of, um, I think of Band of Brothers. I'm just on this World War II, you know, early 20th century American warfare kick with this sermon. But I think of, uh, I think of Band of Brothers, right? The, the great HBO miniseries that talks about Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division, those, those men that parachuted in uh, at D-Day and were integral in uh, fighting some of the key battles in World War II and the European front. And you think about that series, if you watch it, or even better, if you read the book, uh, you'll, you'll see the training that happened at, at Camp Tekoa, for instance, where they got their initial airborne training. You read about the training that they got in England when they made their way over there, and the way in which they were watching over one another, making sure that each of their equipment was ready to go. There's that scene when they're all on the tarmac waiting to get into the sea I think they were C-47s, to, to fly across the channel and be dropped in, and they were checking each other's bags, right? And those airborne troops, as they were in the plane getting ready to jump, they didn't say ready from front to back. They said ready from back to front because each person was checking the equipment of the person in front before they jumped. I can only assume that there was someone who stayed on the plane that was checking that person in the very back, but I didn't do the research on that one. The bottom line is they're looking at each other. They're making sure each is ready to go. That's relational discipleship. That's what we're about here. Don't think of discipleship just in terms of what, you know, imparting information. We're in a war. We're fitting each other. We're making sure the helmet of salvation is on tight and the breastplate of righteousness is secure and the sword of the Spirit is well weighted in the hand because we're in a war. However, third, we also get to rest. Rest securely in the grace of God. Verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me just hit some of those key words. After a little while. A little while. Some of you are suffering for a lifetime. Some of you, that's all you've ever known is hardship and suffering. Be it physical, material, spiritual, vocational, but suffering. It is no less true that even that, even a lifetime, is but a little while. James says, our life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Eternity is forever. So if your experience is a lifetime of suffering, or if it's just a day or a season, know that it's just that, a season that will pass. In the grand scheme of eternity, just a little while. Just a little while. A little while, Peter writes, Peter writes, the God of all grace, this all grace, unlimited supply of grace. Is there ever a day in your life, ever a moment, maybe it's right now, where you think, man, I could use some more grace. 
God has an unlimited supply. The God of all grace who has called you. His call is irrevocable. Paul in Romans chapter 8, those whom God has called, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's this golden chain that won't be broken. Called to his eternal glory. It's a, it's a, in a way, it's like a wraparound at the very beginning of the letter where Paul, Peter talks about this, this great inheritance that's being stored up for us, this glory that we're called to share in, but only, as he says in chapter 4, verse 13, through suffering. Eternal glory. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I love that he begins with the word restore. Think about Peter. Peter knew what it was to be restored. And so on the one hand, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, that points to the last day. That points what will happen once and for all in eternity when Jesus Christ returns. But it also points very much to our present experience. It did for Peter. He could stand up and testify, the Lord will restore you when and not if you fall. He is the one with all dominion, not Satan. Ultimately, we look to the finished work of Christ. I love the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. There, there is the power to defeat our foe. Not a righteousness that we've obtained for ourselves, but a righteousness that's given to us by grace. At another place in the screw tape letters, Scroobtape says this to Wormwood. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, of course, the enemy is God, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks, why has he been forsaken? And still obeys. This is the true grace of God, the grace that enables us to stand firm and to walk in obedience, not limp through life. And I'm not being triumphalistic. Please don't hear me doing that. Life is hard, but in the grace and strength that God provides, (laughs) even though we may limp now, By God's grace, we will soon crush the head of Satan underneath our feet. Remember, the true enemy behind all earthly opposition is not whoever's in the Oval Office. It's not whoever's in the corridors of power in D.C. or Albany. It's not whoever's in the C-suite at work. It's not whoever has tenure at your university. The real enemy is the devil. And he is always ready to pounce. So be prepared. Know him. Resist him firm in your faith. Rest in the true grace of God. The devil is like a roaring lion. But there is a more powerful lion. (laughs) The lion 
of the tribe of Judah, the lamb standing as slain, who by his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, who by his blood forever rescued you, if you have put your hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mighty warrior. Jesus triumphed at the cross. And it's in his victory that we stand and stand firm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which you work by your spirit, the way in which you seal things that are true to our hearts, the way in which you make us attentive to things that we might easily ignore or downplay in terms of their significance. Lord, I pray that to the extent that you have worked in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, and to the extent that you've worked in my heart over the course of this past week, Lord, would these things stick? Would we remember the good news that though our enemy, our adversary, is vicious, he is vanquished? That though he is dangerous, he is defeated? And that though now in time we experience what feels to be a delay, one day from eternity we will see that when you said it is finished, it was finished. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.